You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together on this Lord's Day again, and you have, as you do week in and week out, fed us with your word and drawn us into prayer, um, guided, guided us in confession and Lord, restored us again to the truth of, of who we are in Christ. And I pray that even in this hour, that you will bless us as we push into the book of Ecclesiastes. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hello, everyone. Are, are we going to get snow? Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I'm from Tampa, Florida, so I'm still, uh, I'm still like 12 years old when it comes to snow. I get all kind of giddy about it. Um, Anyway, we're going to do Ecclesiastes today. I hope that's exciting. I think the weather seems about right for Ecclesiastes. If you have it on your phone or somewhere, you can turn to it. I'm conscious, by the way, that I've taught on Ecclesiastes before here. So some of this will be overlap for those of you who maybe have sat in on this before. But worth worth. Uh, going around again and again because Ecclesiastes is this book that seems like it's built for time and time again. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a, in some sense, you read the book of Ecclesiastes and you feel like it's a pro, it could easily be a product of the 20th century. I mean, it's got that kind of existential reflection about what does it really mean to live and what does, what does it really mean to be and that, that's a perennial, timeless kind of question. This is, this is a question for the ages. It seems especially apropos now, but, but in a sense, I imagine it was, it, it was always somewhat apropos. Um, and here we have, at least from the presentation of the book itself, uh, buried as it is in the writings. And if you'll kind of put the card in reverse, you'll remember from last week, those of you who were here, that... You know, the book of Ecclesiastes is in this section of the Bible called the Writings. That's our series. Um, You have something like um, Psalms, and then you have Job. Then you have Proverbs. That's the ordering of the Writings. After Proverbs come these five uh, small books that all fit onto one scroll. We've done uh, two of them now. Uh, Ruth, coming right after Proverbs 31. Song of Solomon coming after um, Ruth, and now we're doing Ecclesiastes. Next week we have the parish meeting. The week after we'll do Lamentations. That's that's the next book, and then and then Esther. So you kind of get a sense of where we're going. And and here we have the book of Ecclesiastes right smack dab in the middle of that small scroll um, called the Megalote, um, reflections on on what it means to be and to live in the world. And in the reality of God's being. I think there are few books of the Bible that are as contested in the sense of the way in which the book is interpreted than the, than the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is, is open to a lot of sort of diff, different views on the way in which the book is best to be understood. My, my sense is that um, men, many folks tend to read Ecclesiastes as, as pessimistic literature. Uh, kind of um, 
what we might say is Ecclesiastes through the lens of Albert Camus or something like that. You know, sort of rudderless on the sea of existence with, with nowhere to go. So let's just eat, drink, and be merry because the boat's going to sink eventually. But there, there's a, a long tradition of reading this, by the way, and not just in the modern world, even throughout the tradition. You know, Ecclesiastes has been, been read in that way. So I, I, I don't read it that, that way. I'll kind of make an argument for why here in a little bit. But Ecclesiastes is a book that's, that's a product of this Solomonic trio. So that you have um, Song of Solomon supposedly written. This is, comes from Rabbi Akavan, the medieval period. Song of Solomon supposedly written um, uh, in his youth. Then, then you have um, Proverbs that's written in, in, in middle age, reflecting on what it means to live life wisely. And then you have um, Ecclesiastes, or the technical Hebrew term for the book is Kohelet, uh, the one who draws and gathers together. Um, it's most often translated as the preacher. As Solomon in his older age, talking, one might say, to his younger self or to the young, reflecting now on life. If you read Song of Solomon in light of 1 Kings 8 to 1 Kings 11, there's a sense in which, and there's some shared vocabulary, there's a sense in which one, I think, could project onto Song of Solomon, I mean, onto Solomon here, a sense of regret over some of the decisions that he made later in life. Um, that, that's a, there, there's a reading strategy that one could have linking Ecclesiastes to the actual narrative of Solomon. And, and it makes some sense, right? Think 1 Kings chapter 3, um, Solomon loved the Lord. Now, that's, a, that's how the whole chapter begins. And then what's 1 Kings chapter 11? Solomon loved many foreign women. And then you sort of track through the demise of the Solomonic era, which is in some sense the golden age. This was, this was, this was the, 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 the zenith in some sense of Israel's history. The temple's now being built. The, Sol- the, the Solomonic palace, the Davidic throne is established. And then after Solomon, it all, it all kind of goes to pot. So there's a very Shakespearean feel that you have flowing through David's narrative into Solomon and then into the splitting of the kingdom. And here is Solomon in old age reflecting on life in light of his own experiences and passing on this wisdom to those who would follow after him. And, and here we are. I mean, in this sense, we're all Solomon's children. You know, we're all called to sort of to, 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 to lean our heads in and listen closely to what the preacher has to say because he's offering to us wisdom. And, and the prayer I think that we all have is that we're sponges all yearning for wisdom. We want to be taught. We want to learn, especially from someone like like the preacher. And here he comes, right? Right in verse 1 and 2. And he provides for us the theme of the whole book. And I would say that your translation of the beginning of Ecclesiastes is in some sense going to temper the way in which you understand the whole book. So here's part of the challenge, right? It's like, I've got to come to terms with some words and some metaphors, and the way in which I understand these terms and metaphors are in some sense going to prime the pump for how I read the whole book. So if you have a Bible, and it's before you can see this, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, never named, that's interesting, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, and I've got the RSV this morning. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all, all is, is vanity. 
<laughs> right? Um, anybody by chance happen to have a NIV here? Has anybody snuck in an NIV? No one? Bueller, Bueller, no one? Um, you have one? Oh. Um, uh, the NIV translates this. Um, boy, this is loaded. Uh, meaninglessness of meaninglessness. Other translations translate it absurdity of absurdity. Uh, vanity of vanities is a translation that we use the ESV around here a lot. It's in the ESV. It's in the RSV. All of that is a part of the King James Version tradition. The King, I mean, the, the King James Version continues to loom large, by the way, in the history of English Bible translation. As you move from the King James and then to the Revised Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, the English Standard Version. In fact, you might be interested in this. Those that were on the ESV Translation Committee, when they couldn't agree on something as a committee, um, they would allow the RSV, which is in effect the kind of modernized KJV, to make the decision for them. So the, so the point is, vanity of vanities is, is so embedded within, especially within the, sort of the Western conscious, for those that are shaped by the English Bible tradition, it, it, it's so established as a translation that I'm just telling you, it's not going anywhere. And maybe it shouldn't. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll say I'll be okay with that. Um, here's the challenge, though, right? Vanity of vanities, or meaninglessness of meaninglessness, or absurdity of absurdity, are all um, uh, committed translations and, and interpretations of a metaphor. And, and you know this about metaphors, right? I mean, metaphors aren't always immediately self-evident in what they're claiming, we did Song of Solomon last week. I think I may have mentioned this to you. But you have Song of Solomon, I think it's chapter 2, where the, the young bride, the Shulamite woman, is saying, I am a rose of Sharon, I'm a lily of the valley. Now we all know immediately that that's a, that's a metaphor. There's a similitude that's going on here. There's a comparison between things that are not the same. God is a lion. God is a rock. He is our fortress. I mean, it's as if the, the poetry of the Bible can't speak without using metaphors. And of course we know, right, that metaphors are the way in which we make sense of the world. I mean, without metaphors, we're lost. We're comparing things that aren't similar all the time so that we can have some access to the reality itself in ways that we wouldn't just have in a, in a natural mode of reasoning. We need metaphors. They're not just ornamental language. They're not just sprinkles on top of the Sunday. It's not just a cherry on the top, a kind of rhetorical literary device. Metaphors range somewhere near the, near the center of how we make sense of the world. God is a king. God is a lion. I am a rose of Sharon. But they're not always self-evident. I think, for example, Rose of Sharon, you hear Rose of Sharon, and you think, well, this is, she's claiming you know, her, her beauty. I'm a rose, I'm a lily. I mean, you would do this if you were talking to your little girl. You're, you're, you're a flower, right? Um, but if you press a little bit, it's possible, I'd say probable, that the Rose of Sharon, lily of the valley image there is, is uh, kind of leaning into her um, normalcy. During the spring, rose in the valley of Sharon, I mean, the ro roses are everywhere. Lilies of the Valley, they're, they're kind of a dime a dozen. I can remember when we lived in the United Kingdom, uh, you know, in, in Scotland, there was a certain season of the year when the tulips were out. I mean, you could buy 12 tulips for a pound. 
You know, it's like just a, at that point in time, tulips are tulips, e- easy enough to get. Um, so I think the claim there is, is something that's much more minimal. So the point is we, we, we have to make an interpretation about what metaphors are seeking to achieve. And, and vanity of vanities is a metaphor. Um, chevel is the Hebrew term, which means, if you were to look it up in, in a dictionary, breath or smoke. So you can see that we're dealing here with a metaphor. Breath of breathiness, um, says the preacher. Uh, one of my students, is, we were talking about this this week in a class, and they said, well, maybe a translation should just do that one time. I said, well, good luck. You know, give, give it a go and see if someone will let you do it. Um, smoke of smoke, or smoke of smokiness, um, says the preacher. I mean, you get the sense here that the, the metaphor of Hevel has to do with, with something that's ephemeral, something that's transient, something that's here and then it's gone. It's like breath that arises and then it goes away. It's like your, your, the fog that your mouth produces on a cold morning. You blow it out and you can see it. You can perceive it. And, yet, and right when you try to grasp it, it's gone. It's like you know the cigar that you smoke with your buddies on a porch someday. And you blow that smoke out and you can see it and it's there. And then you try to grab it and it's gone. So, so the point is with vanity of vanities is that it's a metaphor that seems to be leaning pretty hard into the transience, the ingraspable character of, our, of, of reality at its deepest level. Um, just when you try to grab something, it's smoke through your hands. Just when you try to hold on to something in a temporal moment, it flies by. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. This, this is, this, and I see a lot of gray hair in here. I like gray-haired people. You, you, you all carry the wisdom. Um, it's, 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 the, it's the gray-haired people in the room um, who say, like I hear my father say with some regularity, I, I don't know how it happened, but I've blinked and I'm 70. It seems like I've blinked and now I'm 80. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm in my mid forties. I'm, I know that I'm going to blink and be in my mid sixties. It's Hevel Hevelim. It's, it's the ungraspable character of our lives. And I think the ungraspability, by the way, this is interesting. Abel's name in Genesis, Cain's brother is linked etymologically to Hevel. Abel was here. Evel was here. And then he was gone. Um, and so here we have the preacher saying, let me just, before we get out of the gate and start to unpack the beauty and complexity of what it means to be a human, whether that pertains to the, to the pursuit of wisdom, whether it pertains to the pursuit of pleasure, or whether it pertains to the pursuit of your work, the endeavors, the industry that you've given yourself to. We're going to unpack some of that, Solomon says here. But before we get to any of that, I want you to know from the front end, Hevel Hevelim, vanity of vanities, smoke of smokiness, breath of breathiness. It's, It's not graspable. And I think of this, by the way, in two ways. From a temporal perspective, what I mentioned before, time, it seems to fly. And from an essential perspective of the events and moments of our lives. It's, and I think we all know what this is on a very deep existential level. Even, again, you can come at this from a negative standpoint, but even the best of our moments, the greatest of our moments, the moments that kind of let you exhale and sigh into the goodness of life, 
even those moments attest to Hevel Hevelim. Because you know that you can't really press deeply into the fullness of what it is that you're experiencing. It always attests to something more. And you also know that it's going to fly by and it's not something that you can hold on to. I, I yet, give you an example. Yesterday, um, I, I, I fulfilled one of my honey-do list items. Um, we had our, in, our, in our bedroom, we had a leak from our, from our fan blower in, the, in, the, in our attic. And so some of our paint had cracked. And, and um, I, my perspective on these things, and I mentioned the, these to my wife, I said, I don't, wanna, I don't want to address such things too quickly. Um, because it's good for us to know the fallenness of the world in which we live. So, you know, uh, some hanging paint here or there is not going to kill anybody, but, but, but yesterday was the day. Um, so, you know, you know what's involved in this, right? You're scraping paint and then you're sanding. I mean, it's a, it's a, I, I did this when I was in college, I remember. Drywall is a nasty business. You know, so you're sanding and, and, I've, and I've got sheets all over the room. And Well, we happen to have some picture albums in there that we were, were moving. And, and in the middle of the day, while I was waiting for some spackling to dry, I, I, I just sat on the bed and, and I, had, I hadn't seen this picture book in probably a decade. Pulled it off, and, and all, it's all our eldest when he was two. And then Jackson, and he's 17 now. Jackson was just born as a baby. He's now 15. And I was just sitting there, and, and it's like you're looking at something that you, you don't, don't even really know how to describe. I mean, you, you, know, you all know what I'm talking about, right? The feeling of both the joy that you feel of remembering those moments and the ache as well. And, and they come together. This is why I think the book of Ecclesiastes is so rich. It's going, to, it's going to talk about the joy, and it's going to talk about the ache. Because the joy and the ache are the flip sides of the same coin. We'll never... I mean, our, our, he's not in here at all. Is William, here, here. Uh, William, when he was two, would sit in his room in three and line up literally hundreds of matchbox cars. I mean, line them up, da 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 da, da put them all around. We, and, I, and, I, and it was such a central part of our lives, and he loved John Deere tractors. I mean, he would watch videos on John Deere tractors. And then to see that, I'm like, oh my gosh, I, that was so central to our life and our humor and our joy back then, and that's not him now. Um, it's a different sort of him now. And, and you feel that. So I think that's what... That's what Ecclesiastes is telling us from the end of life. It's, um, it's vanity of vanities. It's, it's smoke. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's air. It's breath. That's very hard to grasp, either from the temporal side and the essential side. And admittedly, there's an ache that comes with that. And Ecclesiastes doesn't shy away from the ache. And, and he presses in on three things in particular. You're going to pursue wisdom, but let me tell you about the pursuit of wisdom. Hevel Hevelim. Your pursuit to understand and to know, to make sense of the world, to live well, to live righteously, that itself is, um, uh, is, is smoke and breath through your hands. To the writing of books, there, there is no end. I, I feel this, and I don't project this on you, but I, I feel this as an academic. I mean, at some point in time, you know, you spend, at least for me, you spend your 30s trying to fill in all kinds of gaps. I've got to read this, got to read that, got to read what I haven't read. And then you realize, like, well, I'm just, it's just not going to happen. Like, all the things that I should read, they're not going to get read. 
um, to, to the making of books, to the reading of books, there is no end. Um, you know, I, I, re- I remember having, you know, I've written a few books that, and they're, they're cures for insomnia if you'd like to buy one. Um, you know, but I, I, but I can remember having this moment, you know, walking the library in, at, the, at the Divinity School at Sanford. We've got a massive biblical studies section, all these books there, and, and, and many, many of them are very, very good. Now I'm thinking, I'm going to spend three years to fill that slot right between those two among the thousands that are here. Hevel, hevelim, right? Vanity of vanity. It's just, it's smoke. It's moving. So when it comes to the pursuit of wisdom, when it comes to our toil, this is one of the things that Kohelet leaves you with. Here, he said, here's something I've seen under the sun. A man work, and or woman works hard all of her days. And then they've achieved something by the end. They've built something memorable and lasting. And they hand it off to somebody else. Who knows what they're going to do with it? Vanity of vanities, right? Um, or, or, or pleasure. I mean, I gave myself to pleasure. I tried, I mean, at one point in here, he says, I hired the best singers, and I, so can I put an art? I went to all the great operas. I, I, I knew the best restaurants. I was a bit of a foodie. And then at some point in time, it's like, it's, it's Hevel Hevelim. So that's the ache side that I don't think, and so no, you can read it in those terms in a kind of, I don't want to say pessimism, but a, but a realism, that's the term I like, a realism about the ache of human existence in our movement, in our transience. You do know, don't you, that you never fully experience the present. Only God does that. For, for God, time is an eternal present, future, now, Past, all of that is equally present to God in His view and His giving of Himself to time. That's not how you and I experience time. We are caught in the continuum of past and future. We're always in movement. We're always extended. We're never static or at stasis. We're never at rest. I think it's one of the reasons why God um, portrays the seventh day in the new heavens and the new earth as rest. Like we heard from Ben this morning about drinking wine. I mean, that's one of the ways they talk about the new heavens and the new earth is this sense of rest and stability and sitting around the table and enjoying your fig trees and sitting on a park bench and all of that sort of promise of rest because we don't have it. But we're always in movement. Now, Sundays, historically, were meant to be a sort of a day of rest, a kind of Christian Shabbat or Sabbath. But we know that Sunday, given the movement of time, will become Monday morning. My, my father's famous for this, and it drives me. I tell him, don't do it. We'll, go to the, we'll be planning our beach trip, and we'll go to the beach as a family. And inevitably, my dad, who's got a little bit of the melodramatic in him, will say, like, we're, we're going to leave on sun Saturday. And he'll say on Tuesday, only four more days. <laughs> I'm like, stop! Just, and then, just three more days, and this is going to be over. I'm like, no, 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 right? But... But we all get it, right? Like, this is great, but it, but it can't be grasped. So that's, that's where Kohelet leaves us, right? And the, and, but, but look where he goes. So what do we do in the light of all of this? Chapter 2, verse 24 through 26, which, which is an interesting way to sum up these first two chapters that are really seminal to the book. There's nothing better for man that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now this is interesting, right? Because he's already told us that some of that's vanity. It's Hevel. But he says after this, enjoy uh, his eat and dr- his food and drink and his toil. 
I saw that this is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and heaping only to give to one who pleases God. But even this, he says, is hevel and a striving after the wind. Even this, you know, the, good, the goodness that God gives you. Enjoy the kind things that God gives you in this life. In other words, this is the pleasure side of the ache. The ache is we know it's ungraspable. We can't hold on to it. It's moving through our fingers. But the flip side is the joy and pleasure of it. Embrace it fully as from God's hand. Knowing that it's not, and I'm going to go St. Augustine on you here, it's not an end. This is where he's going to go in the book. I, I, by the way, I'm just going to lay my cards on the table. I read Ecclesiastes through the lens of St. Augustine. I can't help it. Because I think Kohelet, the preacher, is helping you and me think through the ordering of our desire. How do we order our desires? Because the good things that God gives, gives us in this world, toil, pleasure, eat, drink, he's going to say later, wife, children, um, humanity. The good things that he gives us, they are good, but they're still hevel. They, they, they can't be held on to. They can't be made an ultimate end. Because when they become an ultimate end, that only exacerbates the ache. But, but what are they? They're, they're uses, they're gifts that God gives us to the end, into the book of Ecclesiastes, of fearing God, worshiping God, and knowing that He is our ultimate good. That's where the book is, I would say, tyrannically forcing us. So this is what we do in the middle of it, is we sort through the fact that God gives us these things, and there's an ache, and there's a pleasure, there's a hurt, and there's a joy that comes with human existence as it moves toward its ultimate destination and the ultimate good, namely God Himself. And right after chapter 2, so he talks about the goodness that God gives us in this world to be enjoyed, he then gives us a beautiful, um, poetic, uh, musical, lyrical description of God's providence. Someone should write a song off of these lyrics. I don't know if they're going to or not. Have you heard this before? Here's the basis of what he just said at the end of chapter 2. For everything there is a season, and there's a time for every matter under heaven, time to be born and die, planting and plucking up, killing and healing, breaking down and building up, weeping and laughing, mourning, dancing, casting away stones, gathering stones, embracing, not embracing, time to seek, time to lose, to keep, to cast away, to rend, to sow, to keep silence and to speak, to love, to hate, war, peace. What gain has the worker from all his toil? So here you have in the first eight verses the basic confession about God's providence. There's a time for everything. And God is the one who's ordering it according to his own time. That's what he says in the next verse, in, in verse 10. I've seen the business that God has given to the sons of men to busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. And look at this next verse here. Also, he has put eternity into man's mind so that, and this is my own translation of this, this is controversial, but I'm going to go with it. So that without it, that is the eternity that he's put into our hearts, we cannot perceive what God is doing at the beginning and the end. Without God having put eternity, that kind of ache for Him in our hearts and our minds, then we don't have the ability to perceive what it is that God is doing in this world 
recognizing the limitations of our knowledge. This is a big display here from the preacher at the end of his life, letting you know that at the end of the day, you must hold on to the truth of God's providence. God is involved in the creaturely affairs of humanity, sowing and reaping, being born and dying. God is making all things beautiful in his time. And then after this, when you get into chapter 6 and following, do you want to know the question that Kohelet raises again and again? Here it is. Two words. Who knows? Chapter 6. Then chapter 8. Who knows? Chapter 11. Who knows? In other words, the flip side of this confession about God's providence, that's the the joy, that's the encouragement, that's the hope that's given to us, is also a very realistic view of our place in time vis-a-vis God's providence, which is what? We cannot always figure it out. And not knowing and not understanding what God is up to is not necessarily a condition to be overcome. Think about that. It's not necessarily a plight for you and for me to solve that we can't sort through what God's doing. And there's both a, again, here's I think the sort of temperature of the book, there's both an ache and there's a pleasure that comes with that. The ache is, well, that's hard. It's hard not to know what God's doing in this time, especially when it's one of those dying times, when it's not the, the, the reaping time, when it's the hurt time, when it's the lost time. It's hard to be in a position to say, I don't know what God is doing. But the flip side of that is also to say, but I know He's doing something. And He's working all things out beautifully in His time. And I have to wait for His time. Because remember, God's perspective of our time is very different than your perspective of your time. It's all present to Him in the fullness of His being. And He's working all things out in His time. So can I just sum this up with what I think four things that the book of Ecclesiastes leaves us with, and then I'll let you go. Number one, Ecclesiastes leaves us in a place of trusting um, in His providence. Trusting and believing that God is involved and He's shaping. Um, and this is hard. I think this is like Christianity um, 712. All right? This is not a basic class. This is 712 Christianity here. Um, and that he's involved providentially and beautifully in our joy and our pain. In, in, in the good things and in the lost things. He's involved. He's there. He's ordering all things according to his time and his purposes. And I, you know, I do believe in the, in the sovereignty of God. I believe that God is sovereign, overseeing all creation to his intended purpose and end. Um, and I will say to you, and I think this is where Ecclesiastes leaves us too, that's, not, that's a doctrine that comforts and that's a doctrine that haunts. It does both. It brings pleasure and hope because I know I have to leave it in God's hands. But it haunts because it leaves us in a position of not knowing and not always knowing. This is why the book of Job, or at least one of the reasons why Job exists in the Bible. Because Job's big problem was the God that he knew is no longer operating with him the way in which he had grown accustomed. God now seems a stranger, acting differently than, than what I was used to. And it throws Job's whole world into a tailspin. There's, a, there's an ache with that. So that God's providence brings joy and hope. He's in control. But it also brings a certain kind of ache. I don't always know what he's up to. 
William Cooper, by the way, he got this in his, in his classic hymn. I mean, one of the greatest theological hymns in our hymnal. God moves in mysterious ways His wonders to perform. He hides His footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. I mean, we, we got, and what's the, I think it's the third verse of the hymn. God is His own best interpreter, which is in effect William Cooper saying, sometimes you're just going to need to cover your mouth. You, you are not God's best interpreter. He is. Leave it with Him in His providence. So a trust in God's providence, number one. Number two, a recognition that we will not always know and that not knowing is not a condition that has to be overcome. We have to live in a position of faith and hope for the future. Number three, um, Kohelet leaves you with this promise. In, in the middle of all of that, enjoy. I mean, it shows up and, it's just, and it seems so pedestrian. It's like we're talking about the mysteries of the universe here. And, and what's part of his counsel to us in the middle of the mysteries of the universe, of God's providence and, and sovereignty and time? I mean, these are the big categories of life. And, 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 and what does he say? Um, enjoy that bottle of Pinot Noir. Enjoy it. You, you like an evening out? Enjoy that good gift. You like hiking Red Mountain Trail with your family? Go do that and enjoy it. And see it as God's good gift to you. It's Kevel. It's fleeting. You can't grasp it temporally or essentially. It's moving beyond, through your fingers. But in the moment, enjoy it and recognize it as God's good gift to you. Because the fourth thing that Ecclesiastes leaves us with, and it's in chapter 5, and it's how the whole book ends. And this is what he says. It's like you can just, you can just hear him at the end of, of, of the book, leaning onto his cane. You know, like an older man who kind of leans on his cane to say, I want you to listen up to this especially. When everything is said and done, was all wrapped up. I'm going to put a bow on this thing of what it means to be a human. Worship God. Fear Him. Live in the reality of His existence, even when He's a mystery to you. Even when you can't figure Him out. Because the areas of your life, think of this, that you can't figure out in terms of God's providence, need to be understood through the lens of what you can figure out. And what, can you, what has He revealed to us clearly? He's revealed to us that He's for us in His Son. He's given us His Son. We are of the number of the redeemed. We're those who count themselves among the objects of God's love and His faithfulness, even to the point of delivering His own Son to death the death of the cross. I mean, we, we know that that's true. There's a lot about the universe that we don't know, but we know that that's true. And that's sufficient to get up tomorrow and to live into that day and to seek God's plan in that day and to enjoy the gift and the toil, the ache and the pleasure, trusting His providence because He's given us His Son. So when all is said and done, fear God keep His commandments, live in light of His presence and His providence, knowing, as Cooper famously said, that behind what appears to be a frowning providence, there always hides a smiling face. So Lord, we're grateful that You smile on us. You smiled on us through the eternity of Your Son. But Lord, You've also, in Your Word, been very honest with us. And we're grateful as your people. Christianity, the life of faith, being human, it's not pie in the sky. It's not abstracted from concrete existence. It's caught up with relationships and people and work and 
struggling with pleasure and thinking through what it means to be wise and all the things that we trouble ourselves with in this world that you've given to us, O Lord. But given to us, Father, to draw us to you, to fear you, to worship you, to live in the light of your existence. And Lord, when we cannot figure you out, when the providence seems to be a heavy blow, um, whether that's through events or whether that's through the mental hurdles of the ache of human existence, help us to read even those providences, Lord, through the view of you giving us your Son. You've given us eternity, the eternity of your love. Let that give us joy even, even in the sorrow. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.